needs to do to take care of himself. Breaking Free Activity Number 34 Are there any areas in your personal relationships in which you avoid setting appropriate boundaries? Do you tolerate intolerable behavior? Avoid dealing with a situation because it might cause conflict. Not ask for what you want. Sacrifice yourself to keep the peace. If you applied the second date rule or the healthy male rule to these situations, how might you change your behavior? Additional Strategies for Happy, Healthy Relationships In addition to the program of recovery presented in previous chapters of No More Mr. Nice Guy, there are a few additional strategies that will help nice guys get the love they want. These include focusing on their relationship, not their partner, not reinforcing undesirable behaviors, doing something different, Focusing on their relationship, not their partner, helps nice guys get the love they want. Wounded people are attracted to wounded people. When nice guys enter a relationship, they frequently choose partners who look more dysfunctional than they do. This creates a dangerous illusion that one of them is sicker than the other. This is a distortion because healthy people are not attracted to unhealthy people, and vice versa. I frequently tell couples that if you have one obviously wounded person in a relationship, you always have two, no exception. When my wife Elizabeth and I first got together, we created a system in which she was identified as the broken one while I was designated the healthy one. These scripts worked well for both of us until she started going to counseling. One day she came home from a therapy session and announced that she had discovered that I was just as messed up as she was. Because I couldn't entertain the idea that I was messed up, I responded, No, you are really finding out that you are just as healthy as I am. The relationship system we had created together allowed both of us to play familiar yet dysfunctional roles. Unfortunately, it also prevented any kind of real intimacy until Elizabeth began to challenge the status quo. I've listened to countless nice guys who have formed relationships like the one Elizabeth and I initially created. These men have the belief that they are victims to their sick partner's dysfunction. This illusion keeps everyone involved stuck in repetitive, ineffective patterns. By focusing on their relationship instead of their partner, recovering nice guys are able to use their partner to get in touch with their childhood experiences of abandonment, neglect, abuse, and smothering. They can use this information to better understand why they have created the kind of relationship system they have. This process enables them to make changes that allow them to get what they want in their intimate relationships. Instead of saying, if she would just, the recovering nice guy has to ask, why did I need to co-create this relationship? 
How does this relationship let me play familiar roles? How does this relationship let me meet unconscious needs? Why did I invite this person into my life? When the recovering nice guy begins asking these kinds of questions, he can begin to see his significant other as a partner in healing. This not only shifts how he views his partner, but also allows him to address childhood issues that prevent him from having a truly intimate relationship. In the beginning of this chapter, we met Carl, whose wife, Danita, seemed as hard to please as his cold, critical mother. Carl never knew when his mom might get angry, criticize, or shame him. In adulthood, Carl co-created a similar dynamic with Danita. When she got angry, Carl would use all of his childhood survival mechanisms, like avoidance and withdrawal, to try to cope. Carl would accuse Danita of being angry all the time, and would walk on eggshells to avoid upsetting her. Carl would tell himself, I don't deserve this. He would then retreat and create escape scenarios in his head. The relationship began to shift when Carl came to see Danita as a gift, whom he invited into his life to help him clean out his old issues around his fear of angry and critical people. As Carl made this shift, several things began to happen. He began to have grief for what he went through as a child. He began standing up to Danita rather than avoiding and withdrawing. As he came to see Danita's anger as a result of her own childhood wounding, Danita began to look less and less angry to him. As his view of his wife began to shift, Carl began to feel more loving toward Danita, and the relationship began to show marked improvement. Breaking Free Activity number 35 the next time you find yourself feeling frustrated, resentful, or rageful at your partner, ask yourself these questions. Why have I invited this person into my life? What do I need to learn from this situation? How would my view of this situation change if I saw it as a gift? Not reinforcing undesirable behaviors helps nice guys get the love they want. A couple of years ago, we bought a Weimaraner puppy. We decided that if we were going to have a big dog in the house, we should take him to obedience school. One of the first lessons we learned was that we were the ones who needed obedience training. Most dogs that behave badly, we found out, have been conditioned to do so by ignorant or inconsistent owners. In many ways, humans aren't much different from pets. People often behave the way they've been trained to behave. For example, if a person gives a dog a treat when he pisses on the carpet, the dog will keep pissing on the carpet. The same is true for humans. If the nice guy reinforces his partner's undesirable behaviors, she will keep behaving in undesirable ways. Here is the irony for nice guys. Nice guys like the idea of a smooth and problem-free relationship. Typically, if their partner is unhappy, depressed, angry, 
or having a problem, they will jump right in and try and fix it or make it better. They believe that by doing so, they will make the problem go away and everything will quickly get back to normal. Unfortunately, this is like giving a dog a treat for pissing on the carpet. Every time a nice guy responds to or pays attention to a behavior he would like to eliminate, he is actually reinforcing that very behavior. This reinforcement increases the likelihood that that behavior will occur again. For example, Joe's wife frequently came home from work in a silent rage over some problems she experienced with a co-worker. It bothered Joe when his wife was in this mood. In an attempt to relieve his anxiety, he would ask his wife what was wrong. After a little coaxing, she would spend the next couple of hours venting to Joe about how mistreated she was at work. Joe would listen and offer helpful suggestions, hoping that by doing so, she would get over her mood. In his attempt for short-term anxiety relief, Joe had actually helped create a long-term problem. Every time he asked his wife what was wrong, listened for hours, and offered advice, he was actually reinforcing a behavior pattern he found undesirable. In dog obedience school, we learned that if you want an undesirable behavior to go away, you stop paying attention to it. The same is true in relationships. Like many nice guys, Joe felt like a victim to his wife's behavior. He was oblivious to the fact that he was responsible for perpetuating a behavior he found undesirable. When the men in his No More Mr. Nice Guy group pointed this fact out to him, he decided to try something different. The next time his wife came home in a silent, withdrawn mood, he didn't say anything. He ate dinner in silence and then went out to the garage. Even though he felt intense anxiety, he resisted his impulse to try to fix his wife. As he lay awake in bed that night, the deafening silence kept him awake for hours. The next morning, the silence continued. Joe was afraid this behavior might go on forever. In an attempt to relieve his anxiety, he tried making a little small talk. His wife responded with one-word answers and left for work. That evening, it seemed as if a miracle had occurred. Joe's wife came home from work in a good mood and asked Joe if he wanted to go for a walk. While walking, she told him how she had resolved the previous day's problem. Joe revealed to his wife how uncomfortable it had made him to not try to fix her problem the previous evening. She responded by telling Joe that she didn't want him to try to fix her problems and that she liked it better that he had given her some space to work it out on her own. Doing something different when beginning a new relationship helps nice guys get the love they want. For nice guys who see a relationship come to an end, or for the ones who are presently single, I encourage them to take a different approach when beginning new relationships. Relationships are messy, and there's no way to eliminate the bumps and potholes. But we don't have to make them any more difficult than they already are. This is one area where I strongly encourage nice guys to do something different. That is, enter relationships with a healthy agenda, rather than an unconscious, dysfunctional one. 
Doing something different means choosing a different kind of partner. A fixer-upper may be a fun challenge when it comes to restoring a car, but it's a terrible way to choose a partner. Nice guys have a tendency, due to their own insecurities, to pick partners who seem like they need a little polishing. Because they don't know why a healthy or independent person would want them, they settle for a diamond in the rough. They tend to pick partners who have troubled childhoods, are sexual abuse survivors, have had a string of bad relationships, are depressed, are having money problems, are overweight, or are struggling single moms. Then they go to work operating from a covert contract, fixing, caretaking, and pleasing, all with the hope that she will turn out to be a polished gem. Unfortunately, this strategy rarely works. When recovering nice guys create relationships with people who don't need fixing, they improve their odds of finding the love they want. This doesn't mean searching for the perfect partner, just one who is already taking responsibility for her own life. Over time, the members of my No More Mr. Nice Guy groups have come up with a number of traits to consciously look for when creating new relationships. These traits include, in no particular order, passion, integrity, happiness, intelligence, sexual assertiveness, financial responsibility, commitment to personal growth. Nice guys who are already in a relationship may find it unsettling if their current partner doesn't fare well by this list, especially if it is the nice guy doing the evaluating. That doesn't mean they need to jump out of the relationship and go looking for greener pastures. Instead, I encourage these men to first begin addressing their own behaviors and look at why they needed to create the kind of relationship they have with their present partner. Finding a new partner won't be the solution if the nice guy still needs the same kind of relationship. I have found that when recovering nice guys begin dealing with their own dysfunctional patterns, their relationships also begin changing. At times, these changes cause them to reevaluate their desire to get out. Sometimes they confirm it is time for a change. Nice guys have a strong tendency to try to do everything right. This list isn't meant as a magic formula. There are no perfect people and no perfect relationships. But by consciously looking for the traits listed above in a prospective partner, nice guys can save themselves a lot of grief and improve their chances of actually finding what they are looking for. Doing something different also means refraining from being sexual in new relationships. Nice guys must give themselves a chance to accurately evaluate the traits listed above by staying out of bed with a person until they really get to know her. Once the sex begins in relationships, the learning stops. Sex creates such a powerful bond that it is difficult to accurately evaluate the appropriateness of a new relationship. Nice guys may often be aware of various traits or behaviors they find unacceptable in a new partner, but if they are already having sex, it is difficult to address these issues and even tougher to end the relationship. Embrace the challenge. Recovering nice guys can have fulfilling, intimate relationships. 
Life is a challenge, and so are relationships. As they implement the recovery strategies presented in this book, recovering nice guys put themselves in the position to embrace these challenges and get the love they want. Chapter 8 Get the Sex You Want Success Strategies for Satisfying Sex Take everything written about nice guys in this book. Their shame, their sacrifice of self, their approval-seeking, their doing the opposite of what works, their indirectness, their caretaking, their covert contracts, their controlling behavior, their fear, their dishonesty, their difficulty receiving, their dysfunctional relationships, their loss of masculine energy. Now, put them all in a great big container, shake them up, open the lid, look inside, and you'll have a pretty good view of how nice guys do sex. For nice guys, sex is where all of their abandonment experiences, toxic shame, and dysfunctional survival mechanisms are focused and magnified. I believe it is safe to say that every nice guy with whom I have ever worked has had some significant problem with sex. These problems are manifested in many ways, but the most common are not getting enough. This is by far the most common sexual complaint of nice guys. The focus of this problem is frequently directed at a seemingly sexually inhibited or unavailable partner, or the unavailability of women in general, having to settle for less than satisfying sex. Nice guys often settle for bad sex, believing that it is better than no sex at all. Again, the blame is often focused on the nice guy's partner. Sexual dysfunction. This usually takes form of an inability to get or maintain an erection or premature ejaculation. Sexual repression. Some nice guys claim to have little or no interest in sex. More often than not, these men are actually engaged in some form of sexual activity that they believe is best kept out of sight. Compulsive sexual behavior. This can include compulsive masturbation, addiction to pornography, affairs, peep shows, 900 numbers, cyber sex, and prostitution. When you add all of these dynamics together, you end up with a breed of men who don't have very much sex and or don't have very much good sex. Even though most nice guys have a tendency to focus on factors outside of themselves as the cause of this problem, the opposite is closer to the truth. It is nice guys themselves who are masters at making sure that their sex lives are less than satisfying. Shame and Fear The difficulty nice guys have with sex can be directly linked to two issues shame and fear. All nice guys have shame and fear about being sexual and about being sexual beings. In my experience, this is probably the most difficult concept for nice guys to understand and accept about themselves. This is so important, I will say it again. 
All nice guys have shame and fear about being sexual and about being sexual beings. If you could peel back a nice guy's brain and find the part of the unconscious mind that controls sex, here is what you would find. Memories of childhood experiences that made him feel like he was bad. The pain of not getting his needs met in a timely, healthy manner. The effects of growing up with sexually wounded parents. The sexual distortions and illusions of a really screwed-up society. The absence of accurate sexual information when it was needed. The sexual guilt and shame associated with centuries of religious influence. The effects of covert sexual bonds created by his mother. The trauma of sexual violations. The memories of early sexual experiences wrapped in secrecy. The distorted and unrealistic images of bodies and sex in pornography. The shame of hidden, compulsive behaviors. The memories of previous sexual failures or rejections. Every time a nice guy has a sexual feeling or is in a sexual situation, he must negotiate through all of this unconscious baggage. Nice guys find numerous creative ways to avoid or distract themselves from their sexual shame and fear. Unfortunately, these avoidance and distraction mechanisms prevent nice guys from having much of anything that resembles a good sex life. These avoidance and distraction mechanisms include avoiding sexual situations and sexual opportunities, trying to be a good lover, hiding compulsive sexual behaviors, repressing their life energy, settling for bad sex. Avoidance of sexual situations and sexual opportunities prevents nice guys from getting the sex they want. As odd as it may sound, nice guys find many creative ways to avoid sex. I have coined the term vagophobia to describe this propensity. Vagophobia is a syndrome where the penis tries to stay out of vaginas or gets out quickly once it is in. While this survival mechanism may help protect the nice guy from having to experience his shame and fear, it also guarantees he won't have very much sex. Alan could be the vagophobia poster child. Alan began therapy due to a problematic habit of entering into sexualized relationships outside of his marriage. Some of these trysts began overtly sexual, yet none were ever consummated with intercourse. The problem came to a head after he began a relationship with one of his wife's girlfriends, and his wife found an incriminating note in his coat pocket. In therapy, Alan revealed that he liked the attention of women. In social situations, he always felt more comfortable connecting with women. Over time, it became apparent that due to childhood conditioning, a monogamous bond with his mother, the decision to be different from his father, and the effects of fundamentalist religious teachings, Allen found creative ways to get the attention of women 
while avoiding putting his penis in their vaginas. I refer to this common nice guy behavior as flirting without fucking. As long as the nice guy doesn't put his penis in a vagina, he can exchange all kinds of sexual energy, yet convince himself he hasn't really had sex or hasn't done anything wrong. On one occasion, Alan shared an example with his No More Mr. Nice Guy group of this behavior. Alan had been on a business trip, traveling with a co-worker, a young woman whom Alan found very attractive. During the trip, they flirted and exchanged sexual innuendos. One evening, they sat in the bar and talked about their lives. The evening ended with some slow dancing. The next evening, after drinks, the woman invited Alan to join her in the hot tub. She showed up in a revealing string bikini. While in the hot tub, she sat on Alan's lap, and they kissed passionately. Even though he was very aroused, he turned down her offer to go up to her room because he didn't want to jeopardize their working relationship. This story is consistent with Alan's lifelong avoidance of vaginas. Alan had a couple of girlfriends in high school, but whenever the girls got serious and wanted to move beyond petting, Alan felt smothered and broke up. Alan portrayed his wife as being sexually withdrawn. One factor that contributed to this situation was that Alan would never directly initiate sex. He believed women thought sex was bad, and he was convinced that if he was too direct in letting them know he wanted to have sex, they would think he was bad. Alan used his frustration over his wife's sexual unavailability to justify his sexualized behavior with other women. Interestingly enough, Alan had a consistent knack of only flirting with women that weren't very likely to be available to consummate a relationship with him. On the rare occasion that he guessed wrong, Alan would find some good reason to not follow through with what he had started. Trying to be a good lover prevents nice guys from getting the sex they want. It is not unusual for nice guys to pride themselves on being good lovers. Being a good lover can be an attachment these men use to feel valuable. It can be a way to convince themselves they are different from other men. It can also be a very effective mechanism for allowing them to have sex while staying distracted from their internalized shame and fear. As long as they are focused on the arousal and pleasure of their partner, Nice guys can distract themselves from their own toxic shame, feelings of inadequacy, or fear of being smothered. Terence, a nice guy in his mid-thirties, is a good example. I've got a problem with premature ejaculation. This was how Terence introduced himself in his first therapy session. My first wife left me for another man. He continued without pausing. That was devastating. The good news is, I met a wonderful, sensual, sexual woman, and we're engaged to get married. There's only one problem. I come too fast. She turns me on so much, I just get too excited. Terence went on to describe how hard he worked to please his girlfriend when they made love. Whenever they had sex, 
Terence would try to make sure his girlfriend had two or three orgasms by stimulating her orally before he put his penis inside her vagina. He then tried to bring her to one more climax vaginally. Unfortunately, he frequently ejaculated before she had her final orgasm. Terence was so seemingly selfless that he told his fiancée that he didn't care if he never had an orgasm as long as she was satisfied. Everything is great except this one issue, Terence claimed. Her kids love me. Her parents love me. She says she loves everything about me, except she feels like 30% is missing. She doesn't seem to want to make love anymore and is talking about postponing the wedding until I can get this thing fixed. Most of the time, nice guys like Terrence are totally unaware of how much they are missing by trying to be great lovers. When nice guys set out to be great lovers, they are actually creating a recipe for boring sex. Sex that focuses on trying to please the other guarantees a routine, do-what-worked-last-time kind of experience. Trying to be a great lover pretty much ensures that a nice guy will not have many passionate, reciprocal, spontaneous, serendipitous, or intimate sexual experiences. Hardly a recipe for good sex. Hiding compulsive sexual behaviors prevents nice guys from getting the sex they want. Imagine the financial jackpot of inventing a pill to take away loneliness, cure boredom, alleviate feelings of worthlessness, smooth over conflict, create feelings of being loved, relieve stress, and generally solve all personal problems. Nice guys believe such a drug exists. They call it sex. Many nice guys discovered at an early age that sexual arousal was a good distraction from the isolation, turmoil, unrealistic demands, and abandonment experiences of their childhood. Unfortunately, when nice guys bring their sensual security blanket into adulthood, it prevents them from experiencing intimate and fulfilling sex with another individual. I have found nice guys to be prone to hidden, compulsive sexual behavior. I have developed a theory that states the nicer the guy, the darker the sexual secrets. I find this to be consistently true. Sex is a basic human drive. Because most nice guys believe they are bad for being sexual, or believe that other people will think they are bad, sexual impulses have to be kept hidden from view. The nice guy's sexuality doesn't go away, it just goes underground. Therefore, the more dependent a man is on external approval, the deeper he is going to have to hide his sexual behavior. Lyle, a computer programmer in his mid-forties, provides a poignant example of this connection. Everybody liked Lyle. He was one of those guys who didn't seem to have any rough edges. A devout Christian, Lyle taught Sunday school and was willing to help anyone in need. Lyle's life seemed perfect. There was only one hitch. He was secretly addicted to pornography. Growing up in an evangelical Christian home, 
He first discovered this drug when he was nine. A loner as a child, Lyle would spend hours in his tree fort looking at pictures of naked women. With his pornography, he never felt alone. Fifteen years into his marriage, Lyle's habit remained a well-kept secret. Over the years, his compulsive behavior expanded to renting adult videos, visiting peep shows and strip bars, and calling 900 numbers. Most recently, his obsession had found flight in cyberspace. Frequenting sex chat rooms, he carried on a number of sexual relationships with faceless surfers on the Internet. Periodically, during their marriage, Lyle's wife would confront him over their lackluster sex life. She would protest that it just wasn't normal to go months without having sex. Lyle would validate her feelings and assert that he, too, would like more sex. He would then fall back on the excuse that he was usually too tired from work and too stressed with the demands of family life. Many times throughout his life, Lyle promised himself he would quit visiting his secret sexual world. Time and time again, he would throw out his stash of magazines or swear off the videos and chat rooms. He would breathe a sigh of relief, only to find himself back at it again weeks or months later. Lyle, like numerous nice guys, invested so much time and energy in his hidden, compulsive sexual behavior that there was little left for a real, person-to-person, sexual relationship. Repressing their life energy prevents nice guys from getting the sex they want. When a boy reaches adolescence, he must begin negotiating the turbulent seas of learning to relate to the opposite sex. If he is to have any hope of securing a girlfriend and someday having sex, he must figure out what it takes to get a female to notice him and approve of him. For some boys, this process seems to come fairly easily. If they happen to be good-looking, a star athlete, or from an affluent family, Attracting females may not be overly difficult for them. Once you exclude the minority of adolescent males listed above, that leaves the majority of teenage boys who have no clue of what it will take to get a girl to like them. It is at this point that many young men decide that maybe, by being nice, they will stand out from the other guys and might gain the approval of some member of the opposite sex. This decision is especially important if the young man has already been conditioned to believe that he is not okay just as he is. It is this strategy formed in adolescence, trying to attract a woman and her sexual favor by being nice, that many nice guys carry into adulthood. It is not uncommon for nice guys to believe that a woman would be lucky to have them while simultaneously wondering why any woman would want them. Because they can't think of any other reason why a woman would be attracted to them or want to have sex with them, nice guys hang on to their strategy of being nice even when it consistently proves ineffective in getting them the sex they want. Ironically, trying to be nice robs a man of his life energy. The more a nice guy seeks approval and tries to do it right, 
the tighter he clamps a lid down on any kind of energy that might actually draw a person to him. This is why I frequently hear nice guys lament about women not being attracted to them. The problem is, once they have repressed all of their life energy, there is little about them to get anyone's attention or turn them on. Women consistently tell me that even though they may be initially drawn to a nice guy's pleasing demeanor, over time they find it difficult to get excited about having sex with them. Often the partner feels defective, but it is really not her fault. There is just very little about the nice guy persona to flip a switch or arouse a prospective partner. Once again, by doing the opposite of what works, nice guys prevent themselves from getting the sex they want. Settling for bad sex prevents nice guys from getting the sex they want. The wife of a nice guy in her late twenties shared with me how her partner would pester her for sex. When she would say no, he would pout and withdraw. When she did consent to being sexual, he would focus on her arousal while she did little to reciprocate. With pithy awareness, she revealed, I could tell him it would really turn me on if he set himself on fire. He would gladly do it and think he was getting good sex because it made me happy. By settling for bad sex, nice guys ensure that they won't get to experience very much good sex. Aaron provides a good example of a pretty common way nice guys create bad sex. Let's visit his bedroom and observe a typical sexual scenario between him and his wife Hannah. Aaron and Hannah haven't had sex in several weeks, a common occurrence in their relationship. Tonight, Aaron is feeling sexual, but instead of telling Hannah that he wants to make love, he goes into a pattern of indirectly trying to arouse her. Even though Hannah has let Aaron know on several occasions she resents his pestering, he moves up behind her in bed and begins to rub her back. As he massages her shoulders, he momentarily tunes out his resentment over her sexual unavailability. As he slowly moves his hands down to rub her buttocks, he also tunes out that her body is totally unreceptive to his touch. He hopes that by moving slowly and not alarming her by being too overtly sexual, she will get in the mood. This approach has occasionally worked in the past. By the time he lightly strokes one of her breasts, Aaron is totally unaware of anything going on inside of his own body. By now, he is focused on Hannah's arousal and trying to anticipate how to stimulate her just enough to get her in the mood without doing too much to make her angry. Finally, because she hasn't rebuffed his advances, he rolls her over and, for the next twenty minutes, focuses all of his attention on her arousal until she has an orgasm. Since he is disconnected from his own physical arousal, he has a difficult time climaxing himself. To help himself along, he fantasizes about the young secretary at work. When he finally has an orgasm, he immediately shifts his focus back to his wife to check in on her emotional state. 
Later, as he rolls over and goes to sleep, Aaron feels empty and resentful. Breaking Free Activity Number 36 How's your love life? Are you ready to start getting good sex? If so, read on. Getting Good Sex The rest of this chapter presents a strategy for helping recovering nice guys experience satisfying sex. This process includes coming out of the closet, taking matters into their own hands, saying no to bad sex, following the example of the bull moose. Coming out of the closet helps nice guys get the sex they want. Internalized shame and fear are the greatest barriers to a satisfying sex life. A man can read all the books he wants on how to pick up women or watch all the instructional videos on improving sexual technique. None of these things will help him as long as he has shame and fear about being sexual or being a sexual being. Getting good sex is dependent on recovering nice guys bringing their shame and fear out of the closet and into the open where they can be looked at and released. This step cannot be skipped. Breaking Free Pop Quiz Most nice guys initially deny having any shame and fear about sex. Take the following quiz to see if you are in denial about your own sexual shame and fear. 1. Think back to your first sexual experience. Was it A. A joyous experience which you could share with family and friends. B. Hidden, rushed, guilt-ridden, or in a less than ideal situation. C. Painful, abusive, or frightening. 2. When it comes to masturbation. A. Do you and your partner talk openly and comfortably about the subject? B. Would there be a crisis if your partner caught you doing it? C. Do you do it compulsively or in secret? 3. When it comes to your sexual experiences, thoughts, or impulses, A. You are comfortable revealing everything about yourself to your partner. B. You have secrets that you have never shared with anyone. C. Some aspect of your sexuality has caused a crisis in an intimate relationship. D. At some point in your life, you have tried to eliminate or limit some problematic sexual behavior. If you answered anything but A on any of the questions, you have sexual shame and fear. Read on. Cleaning out sexual shame requires accepting non-judgmental people. A nice guy cannot do this work on his own. To release sexual shame and fear, the recovering nice guy must expose every aspect of his sexual self to safe, supportive people. This revealing allows the nice guy 
to release his shame and fear and free up the emotional energy it took to keep them hidden and repressed. These safe people can also give the nice guy supportive messages that it is not bad for him to be a sexual being. Lyle, introduced earlier in the chapter, is a good example of how recovering nice guys can bring their sexual shame and fear out of the closet. Lyle was a good Christian, husband, and father who struggled with compulsive sexual behavior. Everything came crashing down for Lyle when his wife found a phone bill and called some of the strange numbers. She was bewildered and devastated. Never in her wildest dreams or nightmares did she think that Lyle might be involved in anything like pornography or phone sex. Little did she know she had just discovered the tip of the iceberg. Confronted with the evidence, Lyle initially feigned surprise and denied any knowledge of its origin. Finally, he broke down and told all. Well, almost all. It took several more weeks, several more emotional confrontations, and a call to me before everything came out. After a couple of sessions of individual therapy, I suggested that Lyle start attending a 12-step group for sexual addicts. This idea initially terrified Lyle, but he knew he would have to do something radically different if he wanted to free himself of his compulsion and experience true sexual intimacy. To his surprise, revealing his long-kept secrets in the presence of other recovering sex addicts wasn't as difficult as he feared. In time, he began to look forward to the opportunity to talk about himself with safe people. Every time he revealed some secret thought or act, he felt a sense of relief, as if a weight had been lifted from his shoulders. As Lyle revealed his fear and shame to safe people, he found that he was less interested in his hidden, compulsive behaviors. As he and his wife became more open and intimate with each other, he also began to enjoy a physical closeness with her that he had once tried to avoid. When Lyle came out of the closet, he began to heal a lifetime of hidden sexual behavior. In my No More Mr. Nice Guy groups, I encourage recovering nice guys to bring their sexual shame out of the closet. I support them in talking explicitly about their sexuality. In our culture, most sex talk is done in pornographic, demeaning, moralizing, shaming, clinical, or joking ways. I invite recovering nice guys to reveal the ways they act out. I have them talk about their sexual history and early sexual experiences. I ask them to bring samples of pornography they find arousing. This is another way of releasing shame while also gaining important information. Throughout the entire process of revealing themselves, I encourage recovering nice guys to experience whatever they may be feeling. Shame, guilt, fear, arousal. At the same time, I give them supportive messages that what they are feeling is okay. There are so many negative messages in our society about male sexuality. It is difficult for nice guys to overcome their conditioning without this kind of encouragement and support. 
Breaking Free Activity Number 37 Find a safe place to talk about the following issues. Your sexual history. Discuss your earliest sexual memory. Your childhood experiences. Any sexual violation and trauma. Any sexual issues in your family. Your first sexual experience. Your adult sexual history. Ways in which you have acted out sexually. Discuss any way you may have acted out through affairs, prostitution, peep shows, 900 numbers, use of pornography, exhibitionism, fetishes, etc. Your dark side. Discuss those things that even you have a hard time looking at in yourself. Fantasies, rage, offending behavior. Taking matters into their own hands helps nice guys get the sex they want. I regularly tell nice guys, no one was put into this world to meet your needs but you. This is especially true with sex. When recovering nice guys decide to take responsibility for their own needs and take matters into their own hands, they put themselves in a position to get the quantity and quality of sex they want. Let me explain. All significant behavior patterns are the sum of many, much smaller behavior patterns. The most effective way to change a behavior is to change its smallest elements. For example, if a nice guy is not getting as much sex as he wants or isn't getting the kind of sex he wants, the only way to change this behavior is to change its smallest components. Rather than going out and trying to have more sex, it is more effective to change the little things that create the overall pattern of not getting much sex. Change the little things, and the big picture changes as a result. Before nice guys can have exciting, passionate, and fulfilling sexual experiences with other people, they must learn how to have the same with themselves. By taking matters into their own hands, by practicing healthy masturbation, Recovering nice guys can change the most basic dynamics that shape the bigger picture of how they do sex. Consider the logic. Until a nice guy can be sexual with himself without shame, he won't be able to be sexual with another person without shame. Until a nice guy is comfortable giving pleasure to himself, he won't be able to receive pleasure from someone else. Until a nice guy can take responsibility for his own arousal and pleasure when he is by himself, he won't be able to take responsibility for his own arousal and pleasure when he is with someone else. Until a nice guy can be sexual with himself without using pornography or fantasy to distract himself, he won't be able to have sex with someone else without needing similar things to distract him. Nice guys can begin to change these dynamics by practicing what I call healthy masturbation. Healthy masturbation is a process of letting sexual energy unfold. It has no goal or destination. It's not just about orgasms. It does not require outside stimulation from pornography and doesn't use trances or fantasy 
to stay distracted from shame and fear. It is about learning to pay attention to what feels good. Most of all, it is about accepting sole responsibility for one's sexual pleasure and expression. Many nice guys are initially uncomfortable with the discussion of healthy masturbation. The concept seems like an oxymoron. In general, nice guys have tremendous internalized shame around masturbation. They also frequently surround themselves with people who reinforce this shame. Partner, religion, etc. Many nice guys also struggle with compulsive masturbation. They fear that attempting any kind of self-gratification might open up Pandora's box. I have found that when recovering nice guys work on learning how to pleasure themselves without using fantasy or pornography, there's no way for their behavior to become compulsive. I have also found that when they share the experience with other non-judgmental men, their shame diminishes rapidly. A note about pornography. I am not opposed to pornography legally or morally, but I think it is bad for men for several reasons. Pornography creates unrealistic expectations of what people should look like and what sex should be like. Pornography addicts men to bodies and body parts. Pornography can easily become a substitute for a real sexual relationship. Pornography creates a trance in which men can be sexual while staying distracted from their shame and fear. Pornography compounds shame because it is usually hidden and used in secret. I tell nice guys, if you are going to use pornography, do it openly. Doing so tends to break the trance and takes the buzz out of it. A note about fantasy. Fantasy is a form of dissociation the process of separating one's body from one's mind. When a person fantasizes while being sexual, he is purposefully and actively leaving his body. While some sex therapists advocate fantasy as a way of improving a sex life, it is actually the best way I know to kill it. Fantasizing during sex makes about as much sense as thinking about a Big Mac while eating a gourmet meal. About the only thing fantasy accomplishes is to distract a person from his shame and fear or cover up the fact that he is having bad sex. Healthy masturbation helps the recovering nice guy change the core dynamics that prevent him from getting good sex. Healthy masturbation helps remove the shame and fear of being sexual. Puts the nice guy in charge of his own sexual needs. Removes dependency on unavailable partners or pornography. Helps the nice guy learn to please the person that matters most, himself. Gives the nice guy permission to have as much good sex as he wants. 
puts the nice guy in charge of his own pleasure. Changing these dynamics through healthy masturbation enhances and intensifies the experience of making love with another person. Terence provides a good example. Terence originally came to therapy looking for a quick fix to his problem so his fiancée would not break up with him. In the first several sessions, I focused on the subject of him making his needs a priority. As with most nice guys, this initially made him uncomfortable, to put it mildly. Terence was terrified that if he wasn't a great lover and didn't keep his girlfriend happy, she would leave him like his ex-wife did. I began by encouraging Terence to do a few non-sexual things just for himself. I reassured him regularly that this would make him more attractive to his fiancée, not less. As he began to discover that making his needs a priority didn't drive his girlfriend away, we took it to the next step. I talked with Terence about healthy masturbation. I encouraged him to find a time when he would be undisturbed in which he could focus on his own pleasure and arousal. I suggested that he do this without having a goal of climaxing and without using fantasy or pornography. I encouraged him to pay attention to what felt good to him and to observe the ways he unconsciously tried to distract himself from his shame and fear. It took a few weeks for Terence to carry out this assignment. The first time he tried it, he reported not feeling much of anything. I encouraged him to continue the assignment at least once a week. After a few weeks, he reported that he was actually beginning to enjoy pleasuring himself, but felt some shame and fear that his fiancée would be mad at him. I invited Terence to bring his fiancée to therapy to work on shifting their sexual patterns. We talked about Terence taking his focus off her arousal and orgasms and beginning to focus more on himself. His girlfriend actually expressed relief. She revealed that it felt like a burden when Terence expected her to have multiple orgasms. Instead of telling him this in the past, she had just faked it. As they communicated about their experience of making love, the patterns began to shift. They actually began spending more time talking with each other about what they liked and didn't while they were having sex. Even though it was initially difficult, Terence shared with his fiancée what he had found out about himself from his own healthy masturbation. He was surprised when she expressed interest in pleasuring him and having a reciprocal sexual relationship with him. After a few months, Terence and his fiancée got married as planned. Both expressed how relieved they were to discard their old way of doing sex for a more intimate, connecting way. Breaking Free Activity 38 Set aside a time to practice healthy masturbation. Choose a comfortable place where you will be undisturbed. Practice by looking at yourself and touching yourself without using pornography or fantasy. Pay attention to how it feels to experience your sexuality without any goals or agendas. 
such as having an orgasm. Also observe any tendency to distract yourself from what you are experiencing, going into fantasy, becoming goal-oriented, having distracting thoughts, loss of physical sensation. Just observe these experiences and use them as information about your shame and fear. Saying no to bad sex helps nice guys get the sex they want. When it comes to sex, nice guys are consummate bottom feeders. They settle for scraps and come back begging for more. Nice guys settle for distorted images of bodies in pornography. They settle for the faceless sex of 900 numbers and chat rooms. They settle for trying to persuade unavailable people to begrudgingly be sexual with them. They settle for quick, compulsive masturbation. They settle for passionless, mechanical lovemaking. They settle for trances and fantasy. Nice guys do a lot of settling. As long as a nice guy is willing to settle for bad sex, he limits his opportunities to experience good sex. I regularly tell nice guys, you have to be willing to let go of what you've got to get what you want. Good sex can occur only when a recovering nice guy decides to stop settling for bad sex. So, what does good sex look like? If we base our answer on what we see in movies or pornography, we will only keep perpetuating a formula for bad sex. Here is how I define good sex. Good sex consists of two people taking full responsibility for meeting their own needs. It has no goal. It is free of agendas and expectations. Rather than being a performance, it is an unfolding of sexual energy. It is about two people revealing themselves in the most intimate and vulnerable of ways. Good sex occurs when two people focus on their own pleasure, passion, and arousal, and stay connected to those same things in their partner. All of these dynamics allow good sex to unfold in unpredictable, spontaneous, and memorable ways. When recovering nice guys decide they will no longer settle for anything less than good sex, they begin to take responsibility for doing something different. They let go of the concept of being a great lover. They practice being clear and direct. They choose available partners. They don't settle for scraps. They decide that bad sex is not better than no sex. Aaron is a good example of what can happen when a recovering nice guy decides to say no to bad sex. For the first few weeks in the No More Mr. Nice Guy group, Aaron vented his frustrations and shared how helpless he felt to get Hannah to want to have sex with him. It was obvious that Aaron believed his wife held the key to his sexual happiness and that he was angry over her willful refusal to use that key. As a result, he felt rejected and worthless. After a few weeks, I suggested that Aaron go on a sexual moratorium in which he refrained from sex with Hannah for a period of six months. During this time, 
I suggested that he focus on doing things that he had given up when he and Hannah got married. I also encouraged him to tell Hannah whatever he was feeling. I shared with him that a sexual moratorium would make it easier for him to do these things because he wouldn't be so concerned about maintaining the possibility of her availability. If they weren't having sex, he wouldn't have to worry about doing something that might make her angry and cause her to withhold sex. At first, Aaron was bewildered as to how this plan could get Hannah to want to have more sex with him. I told him the goal was not to get her to have more sex, but for him to reclaim his key and stop feeling like a victim. Even though he was initially hesitant, he acknowledged that he wasn't having much sex anyway. With the support of the men in the group, Aaron decided to go home that night and tell his wife what he planned to do. The next week, Aaron shared with the group what he had told his wife. He reported that she was initially angry, but over the course of the week had acted more loving toward him than she had in months. Over the next six months, Aaron shared his experiences with the group. On several occasions, he reported doing things for himself that previously would have created tremendous anxiety. He went out with some guy friends he hadn't seen in a couple of years. He began to share his feelings with his wife. On more than one occasion, this included telling her when he was angry at her. He even let her know on a couple of occasions when he wasn't in the mood to listen to her talk about her problems. He also found that he became more honest, revealing things to her that he had previously kept to himself. Aaron also reported that his wife had made some sexual advances toward him. She revealed to him that since he was not pursuing her, she felt freer to move toward him. She also expressed that she liked being able to have sexual energy with Aaron without it always having to end up in intercourse. After six months, Aaron reported feeling less resentful and much closer to his wife. He also discovered how to get his needs met and express his feelings more directly, instead of through sex. Most importantly, when he and Hannah did start having sex again, he felt much more connected to his wife. Breaking Free Activity Number 39 Consider going on a sexual moratorium. Consciously refrain from sex for a predetermined period of time. No matter what your sexual situation is, it can be a powerful learning experience. Most guys initially resist the idea, but once they make the decision to do it, they find it to be a very positive experience. A sexual moratorium can have many benefits. Helps break dysfunctional cycles. Eliminates pursuing and distancing. Releases resentment. Allows the nice guy to see that he can live without sex. Helps the nice guy realize that no one else but him holds the key to his sexual experience. Helps the nice guy see how he settles for bad sex. Eliminates fear that the nice guy's partner can withhold sex or approval. Helps the nice guy pay attention to the meaning of sexual impulses. 
whenever the nice guy feels the impulse to be sexual, he can automatically ask himself, Why am I feeling sexual? Helps break addictive patterns by eliminating compulsive masturbation, pornography, and other addictive behaviors. Helps the nice guy begin to address feelings he has been avoiding with sex. Before beginning a sexual moratorium, discuss it with your partner. It helps to set a specific time. I suggest three to six months. It can be done. Decide on the parameters of the moratorium. Once you have begun, pay attention to slips and sabotaging behaviors from both you and your partner. Remember, it is a learning experience. You don't have to do it perfectly. Following the example of the bull moose helps nice guys get the sex they want. In nature, the alpha male and the bull moose don't sit around trying to figure out what will make the girls like them. They are just themselves, fierce, strong, competitive, and sexually proud. Because they are what they are and they do what they do, prospective mates are attracted. As in nature, the greatest aphrodisiac is self-confidence. As recovering nice guys become comfortable just being themselves, they begin to look more attractive. Self-respect, courage, and integrity look good on a man. As recovering nice guys chart their own path and put themselves first, people respond. I've listened to recovering nice guys tell of selfishly putting their needs first and then being surprised when a seemingly unavailable partner expresses a desire to be sexual. One client, who hadn't had sex with his wife in 14 months, shared in a nice guy group that he was tired of listening to his wife complain about her work problems. That night, for the first time in 15 years of marriage, he told his wife that he was too tired to listen. Even though she was initially angry, Later that night, she asked him if he wanted to make love. A Force of Nature The very thing that makes sex so exciting is exactly what makes it so terrifying. Sex is powerful, chaotic, and wild. It crackles with cosmic energy. It draws us like a moth to a flame. As recovering nice guys release their sexual shame and fear, take responsibility for their own pleasure, refuse to settle for bad sex, and practice being just who they are, they put themselves in the position to embrace this cosmic force without fear or reservation. This is when the sex really gets good. Chapter 9 Get the life you want. Discover your passion and purpose in life, work, and career. If there were no limits on your life, where would you live? What would you be doing in your leisure time? What kind of work would you be engaged in? What would your home and surroundings look like? As you look at the reality of your life, ask yourself two questions. First, are you creating the life you want? Second, if not, why not? 
In general, the nice guys with whom I have worked have been intelligent, industrious, and competent individuals. While most are at least moderately successful, the majority have not lived up to their full abilities or potential, nor have they created the kind of life they really desire. Since nice guys spend so much time seeking approval, hiding their flaws, playing it safe, and doing the opposite of what works, it makes sense that they would typically fall short of being all they can be. This is perhaps the greatest tragedy wrought by the nice guy syndrome. Countless intelligent and talented men wasting their lives and wallowing in the mire of mediocrity. Nice Guys on the Job Most nice guys initially come to counseling to deal with the way their life paradigm is affecting their intimate relationships. These relationship problems often overshadow the reality that they are equally dissatisfied with their job, career, or life direction in general. The dynamics that keep nice guys stuck in dysfunctional, unsatisfying relationships are often the same dynamics that keep them stuck in dysfunctional and unsatisfying vocations. There are numerous reasons why nice guys tend to be less than they can be in life, work, and career. These include fear, trying to do it right, trying to do everything themselves, self-sabotage, a distorted self-image, deprivation thinking, staying stuck in familiar but dysfunctional systems. Fear prevents nice guys from getting the life they want. If I were to identify one common factor at the core of every problem experienced by nice guys, it would be fear. Pretty much everything nice guys do or don't do is governed by fear. Their thoughts are funneled through fear-encrusted neurons in their brains. Their interactions are dictated by the politics of fear. It is fear that prevents a nice guy from demanding the raise he has been promised. It is fear that keeps a nice guy from going back to school to get the education or training he needs to pursue a truly fulfilling career. It is fear that prevents a nice guy from quitting a job he despises. It is fear that gets in the way of a nice guy starting the business of his dreams. It is fear that prevents a nice guy from living where he really wants to live and doing what he really wants to do. Nice guys are afraid of making a mistake, afraid of doing it wrong, afraid of failure, afraid of losing it all. Right alongside these fears of disaster is the paradoxical fear of success. Nice guys are typically afraid that if they are truly successful, they will be found out to be frauds, they won't be able to live up to people's expectations, they will be criticized, they won't be able to handle the increased expectations, they will lose control over their lives, they will do something to mess up everything. Rather than facing these fears, real or imagined, nice guys typically settle for operating at a fraction of their full potential. Trying to do it right prevents nice guys from getting the life they want. The essence of all life is evolution and change, 
In order for this process to occur naturally and completely in an individual, a person has to be willing to let go of control. Letting go allows the beautiful, serendipitous chaos of creation to resonate through one's self. The result is a dynamic, fulfilling life. Nice guys are obsessed with trying to keep their lives smooth and uneventful. They do this by trying to do it right and following the rules. Unfortunately, this life strategy is the most effective way to put a lid on any creative life energy. This lid kills their passion and prevents nice guys from living up to their full potential. Trying to do it right robs nice guys of their creativity and productivity. Striving for perfection keeps nice guys focused on their imperfections. Seeking external validation and approval keeps nice guys stuck in mediocrity. Attempting to hide flaws and mistakes prevents nice guys from taking risks or trying something new. Following the rules makes nice guys rigid, cautious, and fearful. It is because of these self-imposed limits that many nice guys are dissatisfied, bored, or unhappy with their life and vocation. Trying to do everything themselves prevents nice guys from getting the life they want. As children, nice guys did not get their needs met in timely, judicious ways. Some were neglected, some were used, some were abused, some were abandoned. All grew up believing that it was a bad or dangerous thing for them to have needs. All grew up convinced that if they were going to have anything in life, it would be up to them. Consequently, nice guys are terrible receivers. They are terrified of asking for help. They are completely miserable when others try to give to them. They have difficulty delegating to others. Because they believe they have to do it all themselves, nice guys rarely live up to their full potential. Nobody can be good at everything or succeed all on their own. Nice guys believe they should be able to. They might be jack-of-all-trades, but they are typically masters of none. This childhood conditioning ensures that they will never be all they can be in any area of life. Self-sabotage prevents nice guys from getting the life they want. Because of their fear of success, nice guys are masters of self-sabotage. They undermine their success by... Wasting time, making excuses, not finishing projects, caretaking other people, having too many projects going on at once, getting caught up in chaotic relationships, procrastinating, not setting boundaries. Nice guys are typically good at appearing competent, but to be really great, to really rise to the top, invites too much unwanted attention and scrutiny. The bright lights of success threaten to illuminate their self-perceived cracks and flaws. Consequently, nice guys find many creative ways to make sure they are never too successful. If they don't start something, they won't fail. If they don't finish something, they won't be criticized. If they have too much going on at once, 
they won't have to do any one thing well. If they have enough good excuses, people won't expect too much of them. A distorted self-image prevents nice guys from getting the life they want. Because their needs were not met in a timely, judicious fashion in childhood, nice guys developed a distorted view of themselves. With a naive, immature logic, they came to the conclusion that if their needs were not important, neither were they. This is the basis of their toxic shame. At their core, all nice guys believe they are not important or good enough. If a nice guy was called on to take care of a critical, needy, or dependent parent, he received a double dose of toxic shame. A child believes he should be able to please a critical parent, fix the problems of a depressed parent, and meet the needs of a smothering parent. Unfortunately, he can't. As a result of their inability to fix, please, or take care of one or more parents, many nice guys developed a deep-seated sense of inadequacy. They believed they should be able to do the job. Nevertheless, they never could seem to do it right or good enough. Mom was still depressed. Dad was still critical. This internalized sense of inadequacy and defectiveness is carried into adulthood. Some nice guys compensate by trying to do everything right. They hope that by doing so, no one will ever find out how inadequate they are. Other nice guys just give up before they try. This feeling of inadequacy prevents nice guys from making themselves visible, taking chances, or trying something new. It keeps them in the same old rut never seeing how talented and intelligent they really are. Everyone around them can see these things, but their distorted childhood lenses won't let them accurately see their true potential and ability. The result of this distorted self-image is an emotional and cognitive glass ceiling. This invisible lid prevents nice guys from being all they can be. If they do try to rise above it, they bump their heads and tumble down to more familiar territory. Deprivation thinking prevents nice guys from getting the life they want. Not having their needs adequately met in childhood created a belief for nice guys that there wasn't enough of what they needed to go around. This deprivation experience became the lens through which they viewed the world. This paradigm of scarcity and deprivation makes nice guys manipulative and controlling. It causes them to believe they better hang on to what they've got and not take too many chances. It leads them to resent other people who seem to have what they lack. Because of their deprivation thinking, nice guys think small. They don't believe they deserve to have good things. They find all kinds of ways to make sure their view of the world is never challenged. They settle for scraps and think it is all they deserve. They create all kinds of rationalizations to explain why they will never have what they really desire. Because of their self-fulfilling beliefs, nice guys rarely live up to their potential or get what they really want in life. 
Staying stuck in dysfunctional but familiar systems prevents nice guys from getting the life they want. As stated in previous chapters, two major factors prevent nice guys from getting what they want in love. The first is that they tend to recreate familiar yet dissatisfying relationships. They find partners who will help them create the same dysfunctional kinds of relationships they experienced as children. These men then frequently see themselves as being victims to the dysfunction of their partners. Nice guys have a difficult time seeing that they were attracted to these people for a reason. Second, nice guys rarely experience the kind of relationships they want because they are bad enders. When a healthy person would pack up and move on, nice guys just keep doing more of the same, hoping that something will miraculously change. Nice guys aren't much different in their jobs. They are attracted to careers and work situations that allow them to recreate the dysfunctional roles, relationships, and rules of their childhood. They often see themselves as helpless victims to these situations. Rarely do they see why they need these systems to be the way they are, and that they have the choice to leave. Unconsciously recreating familiar family patterns in their jobs and careers keeps nice guys stuck and dissatisfied. While they are perpetuating the dysfunction of their childhood, they rarely do what they really want or rise to the top of their chosen vocation. Realizing Your Passion and Potential I frequently tell the men in my No More Mr. Nice Guy groups that my goal is for every one of them to leave the group a millionaire. This statement really has very little to do with money or material wealth. It is about discovering passion and living up to potential. As stated above, the nice guys I counsel are generally intelligent, talented men. As these men work on recovering from the nice guy syndrome, they begin to accept themselves just as they are. This acceptance of the self allows them to embrace their passions and face their fears. The formation of a more accurate view of the self and the world allows the abundance of the universe to begin flowing freely into their lives. Sometimes this takes the form of money. Sometimes it takes the form of love. Sometimes it takes the form of sex. Sometimes it takes the form of the bright lights of fame. Sometimes it includes all of the above. The remainder of this chapter presents a strategy to help recovering nice guys become all they can be. The following pages present a plan that has already helped countless nice guys discover their passion and live up to their potential. It can do the same for you. Facing fears allows nice guys to get the life they want. Charlie could have been the poster child for passionless, underachieving nice guys. When I first met Charlie, he was stuck in a job he hated and living a life characterized by mediocrity and fear. Charlie had completed his engineering degree a couple of years before yet he was still working at the same job he had held before starting college. Charlie's employers had promised him a big promotion upon graduation. When they failed to keep their promise, 
Charlie just stifled his resentment and kept on doing the same old thing he had always done. Charlie's single passion was flying. In spite of warnings of disaster from his mother, he had begun taking flying lessons after he finished college. Though Charlie dreamed of earning his pilot's license, he never seemed to be able to complete the necessary requirements to achieve his goal. A woman at his work introduced Charlie to my website. When he read the description of a nice guy, he was mortified. He couldn't figure out how someone could know him so well. It took him six months before he worked up the nerve to send me an email. It took him another two months to send me a second. From the first time Charlie looked at my website, he knew he needed to join a men's group. But the idea of being that vulnerable terrified him. It was at that point that Charlie made a decision that changed his life. Charlie decided that if something frightened him that much, he needed to face his fear and do it. Little did he know then, but that decision was just the beginning of a journey that would lead Charlie toward the discovery of his passion and purpose in life. Over the next year and a half, Charlie lived by one credo. If he was afraid of something, he confronted that fear. Charlie's progress was slow but steady. Basically, he crawled until he could walk. He took baby steps until he could run. Once he got going, there was no stopping him. Over a period of about 18 months, Charlie took several steps toward rediscovering his passion and purpose in life. He became more and more active in his No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group, revealing himself and confronting fellow group members. He began looking at the neglect he experienced and the distorted, fear-based messages he received in his family. He asked his father to come to counseling with him, where he confronted him on his unavailability and lack of concern for his well-being in childhood. He quit blaming his lack of money for flying lessons on his girlfriend. He changed flying schools when his current school was unable to provide him with the type of instruction and equipment he needed. He began interviewing for jobs that took advantage of his engineering degree. He began confronting his feelings of inadequacy, family messages about playing it safe, and distorted beliefs about his qualifications as an engineer. He confronted his girlfriend, whom he was initially terrified of, about her lack of participation in household responsibilities. He took his solo flight and got his pilot's license. He allowed his men's group to take him out for his birthday to a restaurant where he faced his fear of being the center of attention. He applied for and got a job with an engineering firm that expressed a belief that he was capable, talented, and had something to offer their company. When Charlie told the group about getting the job, I realized that I had witnessed a metamorphosis of epic proportions. Charlie had gone from being an introverted, frightened, and passive nice guy to an evolving man with passion and purpose. I asked Charlie to send me an email with his formula for success. Here is what he wrote. Bob, here is roughly how I arrived at the new job. 1. Very first, before anything else could happen, 
I had to stop being a victim. 2. I began by setting boundaries. At first, they were small ones, and they grew with time. 3. From the boundaries being set and respected, I started believing in myself. 4. Honesty came along somewhere during this time. 5. Believing that I am an adult, I have an education, and I am qualified to take on the role of an industrial engineer. 6. I always knew that my previous employer was dysfunctional and that it was comfortable for a reason. When I finally realized and accepted that I did not need that system to survive, I could finally move on. Charlie Charting their own path allows nice guys to get the life they want. Most folks, nice guys included, do not consciously take responsibility for creating the kind of life they want. Most people just accept where they are and act as if they have little power in shaping an exciting, productive, and fulfilling life. When I talk with nice guys about taking charge of their lives, most have a difficult time wrapping their brain around the concept. It just doesn't fit their paradigm that they can make choices and act to make these choices a reality. I encourage nice guys to visualize creating a life where they do what they love and get paid for it. Most of them have difficulty with this concept. They act as if I'm asking them to believe a fairy tale. Occasionally, they will dismiss the idea with the excuse, not everybody can be lucky like you, referring to me, and have a job they really love and get paid well for it too. For a while, I accepted this logic until it dawned on me that the life I was living had nothing to do with luck. Earning a Ph.D. involved a conscious decision, persistence, and hard work, not luck. Building a counseling practice involved facing fears, quitting a secure, well-paying job, making sacrifices, working a second job to pay bills, learning by trial and error, and living through a period of poverty, not luck. Developing my skills as a therapist involved a commitment to personal growth, constant evolution, and a financial investment in my own therapeutic process, not luck. Writing a book, building a website, and getting published required persistence and the confrontation of numerous fears, not luck. I'm not anything special. I'm an ordinary guy with ordinary talents. I have many of the same fears as the nice guys with whom I work. I don't have any special talent or skill that the majority of my clients don't have. What's the difference? A conscious decision to face fears. A conscious decision to not settle for mediocrity. A conscious decision to make my own rules. Think about the people you respect or look up to. Most probably started with nothing but still found ways to create interesting, productive, and passionate lives. These people charted their own paths and made their own rules. What makes them different? Most are just ordinary people who took charge of their lives. Here's the good news. If they can do it, so can you.
One of my favorite affirmations is what one man can do, another man can do. Think about it. If others have taken charge and created lives worth emulating, so can you. The only thing stopping you from having the kind of life you really want is you. It is time to start charting your own path, making your own rules, and making your dreams a reality. Breaking Free Activity number 40 Look over the list below. Choose one of the items and name a tangible fear from your life. Write down how you will confront that specific issue. Then, take a small step towards facing that fear. Ask someone to encourage and support you. Don't try to do it alone. Remember, no matter what happens, you will handle it. Ask for a raise or promotion. Quit an unsatisfying job. Start your own business. Go back to school. Confront a conflict situation. Promote an idea or something you have created. Pursue a lifelong goal. Spend more time with a hobby or interest. Letting go of trying to do it right allows nice guys to get the life they want. This book began as a few chapters I plan to write to give to the men in my first No More Mr. Nice Guy group. Initially, when there was no agenda or goal, my writing was a spontaneous recording of my growing insight into the nice guy syndrome. Before long, clients and family members began suggesting that I write a book. It seemed like a logical extension of what I was already doing, so the idea made perfect sense. It was at that time that something began to change. Rather than being just a few insights and illustrations written for the benefit of a handful of clients, my effort became directed at producing something that would be deserving of publication and widespread distribution. I began hearing people suggest things like bestseller, Oprah, and Get Rich. What was once an effortless labor of love began to falter under the weight of expectation. In order to live up to the lofty standards people were suggesting, my book had better be good. Not just good, perfect. With that agenda, I labored for six years to complete No More Mr. Nice Guy. The most common question I was asked by friends and family during this time was, when are you going to finish your book? Over the years, the manuscript went through at least three major revisions as well as extensive editing. Numerous factors contributed to the length of time it took to finish the book. But the number one reason was that I thought it had to be perfect. I thought the book had to be perfect to be published. I thought it had to be perfect for anyone to buy it. I thought it had to be perfect for it to help anyone. Unfortunately, this gross misperception had a number of detrimental consequences. I believed I had to write everything I knew about the nice guy syndrome. The original manuscript of this book was probably four times its present length. I believed I had to be an eloquent writer. I believed the text had to be flawless. I went to therapy to find out why I couldn't finish my book. My children became disillusioned 
predicting that I would never finish. My wife half seriously threatened to leave me if I didn't finish. Finally, after years of frustration, I had a breakthrough. A very wise person suggested that I give myself permission to never publish the book. I felt an immediate sense of relief. I realized that I had gotten away from my original goal, to write a few insights that would help a few men live better lives. Once I let go of the burden of having to get published, be a best-selling author, and appear on Oprah, everything changed. I went back to my original agenda. From then on, when I wrote, I only asked myself one thing. Will this help my clients find answers to their problems? I also kept reminding myself that my clients would never get a chance to benefit from my insight if I never finished the book. Once I gave up the belief that no more Mr. Nice Guy had to be perfect, things began to fall into place. I completed the book. Clients reported that it was changing their lives. Therapists began to request copies for their clients. Radio talk show hosts and newspaper magazine writers began contacting me for interviews. I hired an agent. Publishers began pursuing me. Trying to do it right only sucked the life out of No More Mr. Nice Guy. Letting go and letting it just be good enough set me free to embrace my passion and create something of lasting value. This same principle applies to every area of the recovering nice guy's life. Breaking Free Activity Number 41 What do you really want in life? What prevents you from making it happen? Write down three things you want to make happen in your life. Then write a personal affirmation that will take you where you want to go and post it on a sheet of paper where you can see it. Share your dreams and your affirmation with a safe person. Breaking Free Activity Number 42 how does your perfectionism, or need to do it right, get in the way of realizing your passion and potential? Pick one thing that you have always wanted to do. Write a book. Turn your hobby into a business. Move. Go back to school. Fully embrace a talent. Now, ask yourself the question. If you knew ahead of time that this endeavor would be a success... Would you hesitate to do it? Would this knowledge set you free from the belief that you have to do it perfectly? Would this knowledge motivate you to get started or complete what you've already begun? What risks would you be willing to take if you knew ahead of time that there was no way for you to fail? What are you waiting for? Let go of the need to do it perfectly and just do it. Learning to ask for help allows nice guys to get the life they want. A major reason nice guys frequently fail to live up to their potential is that they believe they have to do everything themselves. Phil is a good example. Phil's goal in life was to be rich. He seemed to have a lot of things going for him. He was good-looking, intelligent, outgoing, and funny. Yet, 
Phil always seemed to fall way short of achieving his lofty goals and dreams. A number of things got in the way. Taking shortcuts, procrastination, and insecurities about whether he deserved to get what he really wanted. Perhaps Phil's greatest roadblock was his difficulty asking people for help. Phil had a number of faulty core beliefs about people helping him. He didn't believe he deserved to get what he wanted. He didn't believe his needs were important to other people. He believed the surest way not to get his needs met was to ask in clear and direct ways. One day, in his No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group, Phil was lamenting about the lack of sex in his relationship with his wife. I asked Phil if he asked his wife to have sex with him. He said no. I asked him if he believed his wife wanted to have sex with him. To this, he also replied in the negative. I told Phil that I thought his lack of sex was symptomatic of a bigger problem in his life. Him not thinking his needs were important and not believing that other people wanted to help him meet his needs. I suggested that changing his beliefs about his sexual needs might be the place to begin changing core beliefs that prevented him from having other things he wanted in life. The next week, Phil was grinning from ear to ear. My wife and I had sex, he beamed. The group shared in his enthusiasm. They wanted to know how it happened. I asked, was Phil's simple reply. I questioned Phil how his wife felt about having sex with him. She was fine about it, he replied. She said she likes having sex with me, but that I hadn't asked in a long time so she didn't think I was interested. A week later, Phil told the group he was dreading asking his father-in-law to borrow money to get the old single-pane windows replaced on his house. Some of the group members began asking questions about the cost. Some shared that they had done that kind of project before. I suggested that Phil ask the group to help him. It was like pulling teeth. But Phil asked the men if they would help him replace his windows. The members of the group responded unanimously that they would be glad to. About a month later, the men got together at Phil's house and had the equivalent of an old-fashioned barn raising. These two experiences had a tremendous impact on Phil. He began to see that his needs were important, that people wanted to help him meet his needs, and that the surest way of getting people to help was to ask. Phil began to build on this new paradigm. Within a few weeks, he shared a plan with the group to start his own business. A friend of the family had offered to help him get started in his own landscaping business. This prospect especially excited him because the seasonal work would allow him to teach snowboarding during the winter, a lifelong dream. An old friend offered to be his financial backer. His wife volunteered to look for a job that paid health insurance benefits. Men in the group offered to help him write a business plan and set up his bookkeeping. As long as Phil tried to do everything himself, he struggled to get what he wanted. Once he started asking for help and letting people be there for him, his life began to turn around. He is now headed in the direction of creating the kind of life and vocation he has always dreamed of.
identifying self-sabotaging behaviors allows nice guys to get the life they want. As mentioned earlier in this chapter, nice guys find numerous creative ways to sabotage their success in life. They waste time. They procrastinate. They start things but don't finish. They spend too much time fixing other people's problems. They distract themselves with trivial pursuits. They create chaos. They make excuses. Sal is a good example of this. Sal was raised by a passive father and a schizophrenic mother. Neither parent was available to pay attention to him or meet his needs. At a young age, he had to take responsibility for the welfare of his younger brother. Sal had virtually no options as a child. When he felt frightened or overwhelmed, he would just hunker down and trudge ahead with dogged determination. As an adult, Sal ran a body shop for his uncle. His uncle was a cheap, short-sighted, marginally involved business owner. It was Sal's job to create a profitable business with the limited resources and dissatisfied employees his uncle provided. Sal actually operated on the assumption that this feat could be successfully accomplished. Every week when Sal came to men's group, his first order of business was to pop a couple of Tylenol to quiet the stress headache created by trying to negotiate an impossible situation at work. On one occasion, I asked Sal if he wanted to explore options for his work situation. What's the use, he replied. There's nothing that can be done. For about 15 minutes, group members asked questions and proposed options. Sal looked like a man undergoing a root canal with no anesthetic. Could you talk with your uncle and let him know how difficult your job is with the resources he gives you? I've tried that. He doesn't care. Could you offer profit sharing to motivate your employees? My uncle is too cheap. He would never go for it. Could you hire an assistant to help you with the workload? We tried that once and it didn't work out. Could you get out of management and go back to painting cars? I would make more money, but it is too toxic. Could you get out of the auto body business and do something else? Like what? I've got a mortgage, a wife, and two kids. How am I supposed to start over now? What is your passion? Your dream job? This time, Sal paused for a moment before answering. I've always wanted to teach martial arts. There is no way it could ever happen, though. I'd have to work evenings and weekends. My wife just wouldn't go for that, and I'd be away from the kids too much. With each question asked and each option proposed, Sal grew noticeably tenser. His eyes reflected a terror as if he was being interrogated by Gestapo agents with cattle prods and ice picks. When it became apparent that exploring possible options only aggravated his fear and caused him to shut down further, the group members mercifully backed off. Later, Sal referred to the experience as being reamed by the group. In most situations, nice guys aren't victims to others. They victimize themselves. By his attitudes and actions, Sal all but guaranteed 
that he would never experience any kind of success or satisfaction in his job. It was much more familiar and comfortable to stay stuck in a stressful, no-win situation. Every nice guy with whom I have worked has at some point had to make a conscious decision to stop sabotaging himself. This is a crucial aspect in recovery from the nice guy syndrome. In order to start getting what they want in life, work, and career, recovering nice guys have to make the conscious decision to get out of their own way. One way of doing this is by changing the way they think about change. This begins with nice guys becoming aware of why they unconsciously create so many barriers that keep them feeling stuck. A mortgage, a wife, a lack of a degree, debt, children, are all just excuses. Making significant life changes doesn't require chucking all these things. It means seeing them for what they really are, excuses, and taking small steps in the direction one wants to be going. For example, Sal could begin teaching martial arts one evening per week. He could begin working at paying down personal debt to enable him to change jobs in the future. He could refocus time spent on trivial, unsatisfying activities. Breaking Free Activity Number 43 Do you believe your needs are important? Do you believe other people want to help you meet your needs? On a sheet of paper, make a list of helpers you have in your life right now. These can be friends and family members. They can be professionals such as doctors, lawyers, therapists, and CPAs. After making the list, answer the following questions. What kind of helpers do you still need? How can you use these helpers more effectively? How do you prevent these people from helping you? Start looking for opportunities to ask these people for help. Build networks. Before asking for help, repeat the affirmation. This person wants to help me get my needs met. Breaking Free Activity Number 44 Identify How You Sabotage Yourself Once you have identified your patterns, determine what you have to do different to get what you really want. Review each item below and identify specific behaviors that will help you stop sabotaging yourself and achieve your goals. Focus. Do it now. Accept good enough rather than perfect. Finish what you start. Don't start new projects until the old ones are completely finished. Don't make excuses. Detach from other people's problems. Share your strategy with a safe person. Check in with them on a regular basis to monitor how you are doing. Failing to do this part would be an effective way to sabotage yourself. Breaking Free Activity number 45 Set this book down for a few moments and close your eyes. 
Take a couple of deep breaths and exhale slowly. Clear your mind. Once you are relaxed, picture yourself living in an abundant world. In this abundant world, there are no restraints or limitations. Good things flow past you continuously. Imagine every abundant thing you have ever desired. Car, home, friends, love, joy, wealth, success, peace of mind, challenge. Visualize yourself living your life surrounded by this abundance. Repeat this visualization several times a day until it begins to feel real to you. Open your arms, your heart, and your mind. Get out of the way and let it happen. Developing a more accurate view of the world allows nice guys to get the life they want. Ever wonder why other people seem to have so much more than you? More money? A better job? A nice car? A prettier wife? Do you envy these people? Do you resent them for having what you don't? Do you wonder when it will be your turn? Due to their early life experiences, nice guys tend to be ruled by deprivation thinking. They believe there's only so much to go around, and if somebody else already has a lot, there is less for them. Nice guys have a difficult time comprehending that we live in an abundant, ever-expanding universe. They tend to see the goodies as being in short supply. They hang on tightly to what they've got, fearing there won't be more when it is gone. They believe they have to control and manipulate to ensure what little is out there won't go away. They play it safe, not trusting that their needs will always be abundantly met. This paradigm of scarcity can be illustrated by a nice guy named Russell. As a successful salesman, Russell earned a comfortable six-figure income. He religiously put 40% of his take-home pay into savings and investments. He kept a minimum balance of $30,000 in his checking account. In spite of his ability to create financial wealth, Russell was controlled by his deprivation thinking. Russell was so afraid of financial ruin that he would not allow his wife to buy a $9 video for his children at Costco if it wasn't in the budget. Russell's deprivation thinking in regard to money was a reflection of his view of the world in general. His father was miserly and rigid. He seemed to single Russell out for critical treatment while heaping praise and favor on his two brothers. Later, before he died, his father cut Russell out of his will and gave Russell's share to the church. It is no wonder that Russell viewed the world through lenses clouded by deprivation. When we come to see the world as a place of abundance, we come to realize that there is plenty for everyone. Everything we need is flowing by us. All we have to do is get out of the way of our own small thinking and let it come. Breaking Free Activity Number 46 Read over the list of rules below. Try a few of them on for size. Add to the list your own personal rules. Write these rules on note cards and put them where you can see them every day. If it frightens you, do it.
Don't settle. Every time you settle, you get exactly what you settled for. Put yourself first. No matter what happens, you will handle it. Whatever you do, do it 100%. If you do what you've always done, you will get what you've always got. You are the only person on this planet responsible for your needs, wants, and happiness. Ask for what you want. If what you're doing isn't working, try something different. Be clear and direct. Learn to say no. Don't make excuses. If you are an adult, you are old enough to make your own rules. Let people help you. Be honest with yourself. Do not let anyone treat you badly. No one. Ever. Remove yourself from a bad situation instead of waiting for the situation to change. Don't tolerate the intolerable. Ever. Stop blaming. Victims never succeed. Live with integrity. Decide what feels right to you, then do it. Accept the consequences of your actions. Be good to yourself. Think abundance. Face difficult situations and conflict head-on. Don't do anything in secret. Do it now. Be willing to let go of what you have so you can get what you want. Have fun. If you are not having fun, something is wrong. Give yourself room to fail. There are no mistakes, only learning experiences. Control is an illusion. Let go, let life happen. Look around at the wealth, the cars people drive, the houses they live in, the trips they take. You can't argue with the sheer material abundance that can be created in our world. If other people are living full, abundant lives, why not you? Remember, what one man can do, another man can do. If one man can make a million dollars, why can't you? If one man can start the business of his dreams, why can't you? If one man can drive a Mercedes, why can't you? If one man can quit a crummy job and find a better one, why can't you? If one man can be a snowboarding instructor, why can't you? Unfortunately, the world can't give us something that we're not ready to receive. Since deprivation thinking keeps a person holding tightly to what he already has, there is no receptivity for receiving more. As Phil found out, when we ask for what we want and expect to receive it, it will come one way or another. Get the life you want. The No More Mr. Nice Guy Strategy for Success Nice guys believe there's a set of rules that govern all behavior. They are convinced that if they can figure out these rules and successfully abide by them, they will have a smooth, happy life. They also believe that there are dire consequences for failing to discern and obey these rules. Discovering passion and purpose requires figuring out what works and what doesn't. Mature, successful people establish their own rules. These rules are measured only by one standard. Do they work? Over the years, 
the men in my No More Mr. Nice Guy groups have discovered a number of rules that work for them. These rules have helped them discover their passion and live up to their potential. These rules have helped them create the kind of life and vocation they really desire. It is time to start getting what you want. Breaking free from the nice guy syndrome will allow you to discover your true passion and potential. By taking responsibility for creating the kind of life you really want, you can become all that you were meant to be. Epilogue It took me six years to write this book. During this time, I have worked with countless nice guys and their partners. I have averaged three No More Mr. Nice Guy men's groups per week. In group time alone, that's over 1,800 hours of working with nice guys. During this time, I have observed many exciting and profound things. I have watched countless men go from being helpless, passive, controlling, and resentful victims to becoming empowered, integrated males. I have seen numerous relationships dramatically improve, and I've seen just as many die and overdue death. I've listened to unsolicited testimonials and read letters of gratitude from both men and women about the changes they have experienced in their lives. I have received responses from men and women all over the world who have seen themselves or someone they love in the description of the nice guy on my website. Based on observing all of these things, here is my greatest discovery. The tools and insights presented in No More Mr. Nice Guy work. Having finished reading this book, I encourage you to start again at the beginning. Take the time to do the breaking free exercises. If you have not already done so, find a safe person or group to assist you on your journey of recovery from the nice guy syndrome. If you are in a relationship, ask your partner to read the book. Share with him or her the insights you are discovering about yourself. Working the program of recovery presented in No More Mr. Nice Guy is one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself and your loved ones. As you learn to approve of yourself, you will discover within you an unimaginable ability to love and accept love and to live life to its fullest. This kind of expansiveness is initially frightening, but it is the essence of who you are and what you are meant to be. With this discovery of your true self comes unlimited freedom. Freedom to be just who you are. Freedom to stop seeking approval. Freedom to start getting what you want.